and welcome to this week's edition of Cargo of Bricks, part of the Reset Project brought to you by Slugger O'Toole and kindly sponsored by Ulster Bank. Now, you may remember a few weeks ago, Richard Ramsey, who is Chief Economist at Ulster Bank, said this. If you look particularly at the younger generation, you're going to get hammered in the, like, you, like the last recession. You're going to, your futures are going to be adversely affected. Therefore, you need to get engaged for uh, mitigating actions. What policies are going to be most relevant to you? The elderly are at the front line of the health emergency. You're at the front line of the economic uh, emergency. And you need to wake up to that fact. So my guest this week is Tony Gallagher, who runs a master's course at Queen's University on educational leadership. I asked him to respond to Richard's remarks. I I think that's exactly right. We know from previous uh, situations, like, for example, the the crash in 2008, that there is an immediate and enduring impact on young people who are leaving education. And those key key transition points uh, uh, at that year. So after 2008, for example, uh, young people who graduated from university uh, had had it harder to get jobs uh, and are doing still doing worse than young people who graduated a year ahead of them, but also a, the young people who graduated a year after them. Uh, so uh, there's plenty of evidence from other situations that you know the, endure, the most enduring consequences uh, are on the young people who are transitioning out of education. Um, and we can see that this time as well. So, so for example, there's a report from the Resolution Foundation, uh, which has suggested that um, uh, a third of non-graduates and a fifth of graduates characteristically get jobs in sectors which at the moment aren't operating. Um, and that creates huge problems for them. Uh, a JISC survey of uh, uh, final year students in university suggested that about 30% of them had um, lost job offers that had been on the cards, that um, a quarter of them had lost internships that they had been offered. Um, and uh, the uh, but something like 28% of graduate jobs offers had been deferred or rescinded. Uh, so there's been a very immediate impact on young people who are leaving universities for their education colleges uh, or, or whatever. Um, and the the way the Resolution Foundation have identified this is it, it's, it's, it's an impact on young people who were about to get their first foot on the rung of a, the job ladder. Uh, and that that rung has just broken away underneath their feet. Um, so that's an immediate problem. But actually, the bigger problem is that not just for the moment, but that's going to be an enduring thing. And that's why we need to think of, of longer term solutions, uh, find ways of either helping them to ride out the storm of this particular circumstance, uh, um, but also uh, look to the future to see how we can deal with, with uh, the, the enduring problem. Of course, I, I don't want people to get the impression that just because you're at Queen's, that this is a problem of graduates. I mean, you've expressed that very well, I think, particularly looking at the precedents from 2008. Um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a bigger problem across the piece, um, particularly those going through further, uh, further education colleges. Uh, and those people who are just due to come out uh, either this year or next year into the job world. What, what, sort of, what sort of issues are those young people facing? Well, it's uh, uh, anyone who is transitioning out of education uh, typically would have there's a variety of ways into the job market, either through apprenticeships, internships, jobs, whether it's uh, temporary or, or full time. 
all of those things have 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 been affected. A lot of them have disappeared in the situation, um, and we know that uh, uh, young people from disadvantaged backgrounds are going to be much more much worse affected uh, in this, this situation. I mean, some sense this is one of the lessons which has emerged from COVID generally. Uh, the um, partly because the initial wave in the UK was, seems to have been sparked off by people coming back from skiing holidays. It looked like a middle class problem, but actually it's very clear it's not, uh, that uh, people from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds have been much more affected. And that's true of young people as well. So there's a general problem and a particular problem that needs to be addressed in, in that way. Uh, a lot of the focus will go on university students because that's very high profile. Uh, FE, uh, FE students are often uh, the sort of Cinderella of the, this whole situation, and there needs to be an important focus on them as well. There are some young people who leave school, not very many, who leave school to go into the labour market, and they'll be caught up in this whole situation as well, because a lot of the sort of the, the uh, entry-level jobs that they might have gone for uh, are in great difficulty uh, as well. well. Give us an example of what those kinds of jobs are that are no longer there. Well, if you look at the sectors which have been most affected by the... Um, uh, by the uh, uh, the crisis, and things like um, the retail sector um, or hospitality, travel, uh, entertainment, all those areas have had particularly bad uh, effects of of the of the lockdown, the shutdown, and many of them are still not not operating. Um, <clears throat> that's where a lot of uh, these low-paid but sort of starting jobs, entry-level jobs, would have come from, and they they no longer exist, or at the moment, they no longer exist. So what do you think? Um, I mean, those are some of the problems that, the, that you've outlined, but are there any, in the short term, I'm thinking particularly, are there any kind of immediate kind of off the shelf, if not solutions, mitigations yeah, uh, that yeah. can really support those young people? Well, there's probably three main areas of mitigation that um, are worthy of exploration. Uh, the most obvious and simplest is to support young people to stay in education rather than having them transition out into a very difficult situation, support them with funding or whatever to enhance their qualifications or skills uh, or devise new types of skills training uh, to help them enhance their um, uh, their own capacity uh, so that they can ride out the storm and by the time this economy starts to pick up again, they're in a better position to get out and look for jobs. So that's one option. Keep, keep them in education for a while. Uh, another is to um, where there are opportunities that, currently exist, even where they've reduced, then uh, preferentially target those on young people who are coming out of education. So, for example, in um, uh, apprenticeships, we know the number of apprenticeships have gone down, but perhaps they should be targeted on young people who are leaving education right now so that they're able to deal with that sort of that first rung, as it were. Um, the third possibility is to is for a, a version of the, the, what the government has been doing around uh, support for employment, and that is to provide uh, sort of full-time paid internships or something equivalent for young people for a year, again, as a way of trying to deal with this transition period and giving them some work experience, uh, helping employers at the same time uh, and helping to promote economic activity. So th those are three different ways of trying to, to potentially address some of these immediate short-term problems. Now, one of the things that has been flagged as in a, a real danger right from the very beginning of this, uh, from, from those people who were looking beyond the health crisis, is the real danger of polarisation. And I don't mean just at the political level, though that's clearly a real and present danger. Um, as people from democracies kind of look at China and go, how come they sorted everything out? <laughs> yes. It's the Chinese Red Army that sorted most of that out. Um, 
but but the, the there's a real danger of polarization in the sense that young people escaping the health crisis uh, is one thing, but actually there are people with mortgages, uh, there are people with real serious economic commitments further up, and people may argue or push back and say, well, you know. Shouldn't those people be, shouldn't those jobs or those employment, the forms of employment be protected before these youngsters? What, what would you say to that? Yeah, well, well, you can understand everyone in their own position can see the, the challenges and the difficulties they're facing. Uh, that's why that's politics should be about stepping back from that sort of individual perspective and looking at the broader picture. And as I say, we know from past experience, and it looks like it's happening this time as well, that the, the people who are most affected in the longer term are young people leaving education, and that's why they should be a priority. There is an irony here that um, with the uh, 100 years ago, we had the, the flu pandemic, which <clears throat> had a devastating effect across the world. <clears throat> the irony is that the flu t- pandemic uh, 100 years ago uh, differentially impacted in young people. Young people were much more, more likely to catch it and to die <clears throat> than older people. The reverse is true at the moment. And there's a real risk that you make it in a situation where there's some sort of blaming going on of young people because even though they get they can get the virus and get infected, they're much less likely to be seriously ill than older people. And that's a real risk. There's You can see sort of elements of that at the moment, but in the, the longer term, as this goes on and people get more and more angry, there's a real risk of that type of polarisation uh, happening. And goodness knows what the consequences of that might be. It could It could be. That to try and as you, as you sort of suggest, dampen down the sort of support that young people need, and that will have long term effects not just for them but for the economy as a whole. That's really interesting. Uh, it, not least that that idea that in a crisis or indeed even in normal life, we should be able to pull the camera lens back, yeah, and be able to see that wider picture, you know. And it's kind of in some ways, we have a lot of external contextualized. Factors like social media that tend not to show us that picture anymore. You know, less and less people watching broadcast media. Everybody else is watching the stories that Facebook or Twitter kind of throw for the, up for them. And that idea of a shared understanding of yeah. the collective challenges, I think that's a really important point. Well made. That's what politics should be about. Politics shouldn't be about pursuing narrow partisan interests at the moment. It should uh, should be about stepping back and be, being able to uh, explain. I mean, one of the things which is really important in these sorts of situations is trust in government, because where difficult decisions have to be made, uh, where decisions have to be made that some people won't like, it, it's hugely important that there's trust in government to do this. And that's because government needs to take these broader strategic, sometimes mid, uh, mid to long term, uh, decisions. Uh, uh, it's too easy to just keep going for things at the moment, but we've got to keep looking over the horizon, trying to uh, deal with sorts of longer term issues. And this is another thing, in a way, that Richard mentioned in in the initial podcast, which is that actually we have seen examples of the executive, and particularly the health minister, taking decisions you would have thought were impossible to take six months before the COVID crisis. Yeah. People willingly play in their part. I mean, it's not simply that the minister's taking tough decisions. He's then asking for cooperation and getting it, by and large, in in society at large. I mean, surely that's a lesson that politicians have to learn in the medium to long term. Well, absolutely. And this was actually uh, one of the lessons, one of the key lessons that came out of the, the flu pandemic 100 years ago, that trust in government was absolutely crucial at working your way through the crisis because difficult decisions had to be made. Ironically, the other 
main lesson that came out of um, this, the flu pandemic was that the most difficult public policy issue would be around education. Uh, if you're going to close schools, when do you do it? If you do close schools, when do you reopen them? Um, you know, if you look at the historical accounts of the pu public policy debates 100 years ago, in, in that area, it's a complete mirror image of the sort of debates we've been having recently. And that, that's interesting. I mean, one of the things on Slugger that I occasionally do, partly just to show a counterfactual, to show that actually it's while it's important to support government policy where we are, because that's the only way to get collective action to make a difference. Those who, who and I, I think this Richard Wilson last week um, in the last issue pointed out that there's a tendency within politics to um, rush to a conclusion too early in terms of understanding the situation we're in. The, the obvious counterfactual is Sweden, which shows you can do it a different way, but doesn't, but, but is done because there is a high level of trust in government and they've taken risks that we haven't really found the courage to do. If yeah, yeah. I mean, the Swedish situation is interesting, although it's, the context is hugely important. The circumstances there are quite a bit different. And of course, a lot more people have died um, uh, is, uh, in Sweden, so that needs to be taken into account as well. But I mean, one somebody was well, somebody involved with uh, the Swedish um, uh, health service was talking recently, saying uh, four months ago, we were being lambasted unfairly for for being so bad. Uh, today we're being highlighted unfairly for being so good. It's it's never as simple as that, and that's that's one of the challenges for politicians. The science of science of this situation is constantly changing because this is a novel uh, challenge, and the scientists are learning about it each and every day. So our understanding of what uh, what needs to be done changes over time. Uh, but rather than trying to pretend we're on top of it. We should be honest about about the things we don't know, the uncertainties, the risks, um, uh, uh, and make clear to people that they are part of the decision-making process. And that's why sometimes recommendations and actions have to change. So that, that I think that's a good point, and it's a good philosophical point. People underestimate the importance of philosophy or a philosophical approach to these things, yeah. but they're, they're absolutely key. We tend to take our own philosophical approaches as read, but that's not necessarily the case. I want to switch now to, we talk really clearly about some of the short-term issues and some of the short-term mitigations. What do you think the long-term issues are and the long-term learnings from hitting a, you know, a, a real global crisis like this all at once? Yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, just because of where I work, I've been thinking a lot about some of the longer-term consequences for education. Uh, one of the things which the COVID crisis has revealed is the huge inequities that exist in our society. Um, we've seen this in terms of the impact of the disease itself, uh, but we've also seen it in the impact on education, where the inequities that we knew always existed have been hugely exacerbated. Um, so that the young people who have uh, sort of had the biggest challenge are young people in houses which is low income, or people might have lost their job or be furloughed, uh, just no space, uh, they don't have uh, sort of equipment you need to sort of to connect with online to do things. So, so that that's been the 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 problem of inequity has been writ large. Um, what it's also allowed us to do is to look back at how things were before and realise just how bad they were. Uh, so, in my view, we shouldn't be um, we shouldn't be rushing to try and get back 
to to normal as things were before because there's huge problems in that. We should be tr- thinking much more innovatively about what we need to do in future to try and deal with some of the challenges we were dealing with. One of them is the issue of inequity. That needs to be taken much more seriously and addressed in a much more sort of strategic uh, and stronger way. The other thing I think has been revealed in, is you know we've gone through 30 years or so of a market-driven approach to education where institutions, schools were pitched against one another in competition for pupils. Universities and further education colleges and schools were pitched against each other to try and get um, uh, more and more students with money following student numbers. What that has done is to put the interests of institutions before the interests of young people. And we can see the consequences of this now as everyone is trying to deal with their own immediate challenges. And that's not necessarily in the the interest of the common good. So I think what, what we're going to need afterwards is a much more strategic approach to education as a whole. Stop talking about school leavers, start talking about education leavers, trying to ensure that there are a range of different pathways through the education system and make all of those pathways as valuable and worthwhile as possible. And then young people are in a position to make realistic choices between worthwhile options. At the moment, all the attention tends to be around very particular routes. That's not necessarily in the interest of young people. It's certainly not in the interest of the wider society. That's a completely different approach to the one that we've had, as you say, for the last 40 years. So you mentioned there the competition between schools is... It has been deleterious. Yeah. But in what way? I mean, the competition of schools is really brought in to try and raise standards in the first place. What what have, what has been revealed by COVID as the key problem there? Well, we know in, in many different countries where they use this type of competitive approach, this market-driven approach, that what it did was produce wider inequalities. Uh, the, the theory uh, is that um, if you have competition, the uh, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, but that's not what actually happens. Um, yeah, it leads to, uh, it leads to um, uh, inequalities and the whole rhetoric around failing teachers and failing schools and interventions to try and sort of deal with all of that. So it, does, it doesn't actually achieve what it sets out to achieve. In our situation, there's, there's, a, there's a further twist in that it's it's a it's a warped competition because with grammar and secondary schools and the grammar school has been seen for understandable reasons as desirable, uh, then that has its impact. So when a period we when we had a period of fallen roles, for example, uh, at the post primary level, almost the entire weight of the impact of fallen roles fell on the secondary schools. And those schools were dealing with the biggest challenges already. Um, so that those sorts of things were, were happening. But what it also does is to privilege a particular route through education, which which raises the, the squeezing as many qualifications out of a young person as possible. It becomes the most important thing. Uh, I mean, in some senses, that's the universities play a role in this because it's all about university entry. The, the huge numbers of young people still, for reasons that are understandable, want to do medicine and law. But actually, we live in a, in a world where there should be a much, much, much wider range of options than, than that. But the key thing is it's this sort of a, a competitive market. It pitches it pitches institutions ahead of young people. And so institutions, for reasons that you know, I don't blame them for doing it because the system requires it, they pursue their own interest even though that's not necessarily in, in the interest of young people and it may not be in the interest of the wider society. That's a key point. And what, I think there's a paradox here, Tony, in the sense that in putting institutions first, they've actually created a grave fragility within yeah. institutions. So rather than make the institutions stronger, and 
and it seems to me there's an there's a there's a there's something underlying there. Well, what that also does, it's it's partly related to the sort of the ethos that comes with competition, which is uh, privilege and efficiency. Uh, and squeezing every every uh, ounce of value out of every pound you spend as if that's the most important thing. It's based on a just in just in time philosophy where you only spend money where you think it's going to get an immediate return. Whereas what we need are resilient institutions, to, if you like, a, a just in case philosophy where we're covering for different scenarios, we're looking out for different possibilities, um, uh, and funding uh, uh, systems in order that they're resilient and can cope with these sorts of shocks. One of the, one of the big things that came out of this was access to uh, online education, remote education. Um, some teachers did amazing, amazing stuff uh, during the lockdown to try and support the kids through this, but a lot of young people didn't have access access to these systems at all. Um, Northern Ireland was slightly better off because we did have a, a C2K system for schools as a whole, but even then there was huge diversity of, of access. You look at some of the Asian countries, given the experience of SARS, they realised that if there was to be another pandemic, they would likely have to close schools for a while. And so they designed and built a complete online education system that and had it in place. They trained teachers to use it. In some places, they ran an annual uh, sort, of, uh, sort of gaming of the system to see that it worked. So whenever they did have to close their schools down, they were able to switch across almost immediately. They were able to identify those young people and teachers who didn't have access to the right equipment and give it to them so they could go straight away, whereas we were sort of flying around for, for weeks trying to figure out what to do. And that's a huge loss of time, opportunity for the young people. I mean, I begin to see some changes here. My own 11-year-old is now, we've just filled in a form about what equipment we have. They're flagging up ahead of any future lockdown, what kind of platforms they're going to run these things on. So... Out of the crisis, there is, if you like, a improvised response. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess what you're saying is that this, these forms of resilience need to be funded and resourced and thought about years in advance of the next big disruption. Uh, absolutely. And online and remote learning is a good example of that because, I mean, so I was talking to one school principal who said that their experience of it was so good that they would never have a snow day again where kids couldn't get a rural school, where kids couldn't get to school because they just switch on to online and keep going. Um, the uh, It also has other huge opportunities arise out of this in terms of personalised learning. So there's there's a fantastic way in which we'd lift our education system to a different level, but it requires the imagination to do that. So you've almost anticipated my last question, which is, you know, this is called the, the Reset pro Project. Um, so... so uh, and what you've just said really might be part of the answer to the question. But for you, in the long term, what does the opportunity of reset mean in terms of education in schools? Yeah, well, the, the late uh, Ken Robinson, who sadly just died very recently, he was talked about this uh, uh, not that long before he died, when people were talking about restarting education. He said, it isn't a matter of restarting education. It's about resetting education. It's about thinking about something different and better. And that's really where we should be going, uh, not trying to get back to some mythical past where everything was fine. Um, it, it means we take greater opportunity of the um, of online uh, learning. It means we think about education system as a whole, uh, not just focus on particular bits of it. Um, we have a particular problem in Northern Ireland because different bits of our education system are run by different government departments. So those all need to be connected in some sort of a way. We need we need to realise that the issues of inequality um, are much more profound than we'd ever thought and need to be taken much more much more seriously. Uh, but the key thing is we need to ensure that every young person 
uh, has a worthwhile experience through the education system and a worthwhile outcome at the end, rather than knowing a lot about some privileged routes and very little about everything else. Cargo of Bricks is brought to you by The Reset Project in partnership with Ulster Bank, bringing you innovative ideas to help aid Northern Ireland's economic recovery. Make sure you catch every edition by hitting the subscribe button wherever you get your quality podcasts.